Well, I invite you to turn to Psalm 51, our text for this particular study. And our emphasis is on prayers of confession. As we continue on in our series, The Transforming Power of Life with God, uh, we've already considered what it means to walk with God daily and the importance of our fellowship and relationship with Him on an ongoing basis. We also thought about prayers of adoration and what it means to lift up our hearts to God in awe of who He is, with reverence for who He is, and how adoration and praise or worship are closely related, but they're not exactly the same, because adoration is as much our posture uh, as anything, whereas worship and praise are what we express from that posture of reverence and being in awe of God. And we're thinking about it from this basic premise, that the Christian life is about life with God. The issue before us in Psalm 51 is the issue of sin. Now, we know what that word is, at least intuitively. Uh, we certainly come upon it from time to time in the Scripture and in teaching and in our devotionals and so on. Uh, but it's important for us to have a biblical understanding of what sin is. And in uh, Hebrew, there are eight basic words that are used to describe sin that are translated in one form or the another as bad, wickedness, guilty, sin, iniquity, to err, to wander away, or to rebel. In Greek, uh, there are 12 words in the New Testament used to describe sin in one form or the other. Uh, bad, evil, godless, uh, guilt, sin, unrighteousness, lawlessness, transgression, ignorance, uh, to go astray, to fall away, and then the idea of hypocrisy. The word that is most frequently used means missing the mark. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all come short of the glory of God. So as we begin to think about what sin is and then how we react to it, we understand that God's character is the clear standard of holiness. If we're going to understand something that is wrong, then we need to understand what is right. We need to have a contrast between the two. Sin is disobedience to God, so we think about it as transgression of the standard of God and his character. And as I noted, it is missing the mark of God's holiness. But it's not only missing the mark of God's holiness... When we miss the mark of God's holiness, we also hit the sin target of wickedness or the mark of wickedness. So it's not hitting the mark that we need to, but then it's hitting something that is not beneficial to us spiritually. Now, you know the narrative. Where did sin originate from? Well, it originated and uh, made its entrance in the angelic creation, Second Peter 2 and verse 4 says, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved until judgment. So sin was a free act on their part. Lucifer, who became known as the devil, was the leader of the rebellion against God. And then sin made its entrance into the world as we know it, into creation in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall of man. At the heart of that was that Satan questioned what God had said. And Eve took of the forbidden fruit, and then Adam did as well. 
Now, that's been his tactic from the outset, to question God, to question God's position, to question God's authority, to question God's word. And that's how many people are getting themselves into things that are just completely contrary to the scripture because they question, well, did God really say that or did he really mean that? And then they just change the meaning of it uh, to do as they please. And we see that uh, rampantly even in the apostate church and uh, much of the heresy that's being propagated. So what is the effect of sin? Well, the effect of sin is separation from God. It is physical and spiritual death, and then it is eternal separation. And God's answer for sin, of course, is the deliverer. We see the promise, first of all, of the deliverer in Genesis 3 and verse 15, which is the first mention of the gospel, and that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that's the beginning of the message of Messiah and what Jesus would come and do. But the contrast is clearly presented in Romans chapter 5. And I won't read all of Romans 5, but I do want to make reference to verse 12, and I want to make reference to verse 17, and here it is. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. Now verse 17, If by the one man's trespass, and of course we're talking about Adam here, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So we see the contrast between Adam and Christ, between sin entering the world and then the deliverer coming to rescue us from it. And what we would understand from a biblical standpoint is that we are sinners by nature and by choice. We are represented by Adam in the original sin, and then by the choices that we make, uh, we miss the mark of God's holiness. And the scripture makes it clear that if we are guilty of even uh, one point, breaking one point of the law, then we've broken it all. Uh, in other words, one sin makes us a sinner. Uh, so the question is not, are we sinners? Uh, the question is, how did we get there? Well, we got there because we have a sin nature and we also choose to disobey God. Listen to what the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says in Article 3. This is our statement of faith in part. Man, through the temptation of Satan, transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity, that's us, inherit a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. Only the grace of God can bring man into his holy fellowship and enable man to fulfill the creative purpose of God. And that's a basic statement about where sin came from, what our sin nature is, and then ultimately what that does for us in our relationship with God. So think about it this way. Through regeneration and justification, we are delivered from the penalty of sin. You are declared righteous when your faith is in Jesus. Through sanctification, we are delivered from the power of sin so that we don't have to live as slaves to sin any longer. 
because we are being sanctified, we're set apart in Christ, and then we're growing in the likeness of Christ. Through glorification, we will be delivered from the presence of sin. So we've been delivered from the penalty of our faith is in Christ. We're justified in him, and we are regenerated uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are delivered, being delivered from the power of sin in sanctification, and we will ultimately be delivered from the presence of sin in glorification. So how are we, as followers of Jesus, supposed to deal with sin in our lives as we still reside in the flesh and live in a sin-fallen world on our way to the heavenly promised land? Well, Proverbs 28 and verse 13 says, The one who conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Matthew 6 and verse 12, Jesus taught us to pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 1 John 1 in verse 8 and 9, he says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just or faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then he continues on in 1 John 3 and verse 6, and he says, No one who lives in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So obviously this is not sinless perfection in this life. We wouldn't believe that that's what the Bible teaches uh, because this is in the context of people who are followers of Jesus. When they sin, what do they do with their sin? Uh, But rather a genuine believer will not deliberately, knowingly, and habitually choose to sin. There's not an ongoing pattern to where it doesn't bother us, there's no concern, uh, but we're convicted and we'll regularly confess our sins as the Holy Spirit brings about that conviction. Now the backdrop of our main passage tonight in Psalm 51, the text before us, is the story of David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. We don't have time to go back and read that whole narrative uh, in this particular study, but I do want to give you the overview of it. Uh, so you understand the situation that David is addressing in Psalm 51. David was in residence in Jerusalem while his armies uh, were battling uh, the Ammonites. One evening in Jerusalem, King David's out walking on his rooftop when he spots a beautiful lady who is bathing nearby. David asked his servants about it and was told that she was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who was one of David's mighty men or one of David's military generals. David summoned her to the palace. Uh, He had a sexual relationship with her. Uh, She later discovered that she was expecting a child, and she informed David. David decided he was going to make something that was bad even worse, so he tries to hide his sin. He commands Uriah to report back to him from the battlefield, He sends him home, hoping basically that Uriah would sleep with Bathsheba and provide cover for what he had done. But Uriah had more character than that, and he refused for the reason that his men were still on the battlefield. So David commands Joab, his military leader, to place Uriah on the front lines of battle and to leave him exposed where Uriah would be killed in battle. After mourning, Bathsheba married David and had a son 
But the Bible says something very important. It says the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So Nathan, the prophet, confronted him using a parable of a rich man who took a poor man's sheep. And David said the man who did it must die. And Nathan told him, you are the man in that moment of uh, really accounting for what he had done. The son born uh, would die a week later, and there would be all sorts of hardship that would follow in David's life because of his sin. So what we need to understand here is that while David's sin found him out, God will forgive anyone who repents. When God forgives us, when we repent and we come to him in prayers of confession, we have to also understand that there are still consequences even when the forgiveness is granted. So what that means is that there may be things that follow in our lives that are unpleasant, uh, that are uh, hurtful, that we even grieve like David did because of his sin. There may be the consequences of broken relationships that are never the same again. There may be consequences that uh, we're not in the same position or authority that we might have been in before. There's a whole host of things, broken families. That doesn't mean that forgiveness is not granted, but it tells us the reality of the fact that sin is painful and there are consequences earthly to it even when we are fully and freely forgiven by God. We also recognize from this that God can work good from bad, that even in the worst of circumstances, God can bring about good. The superscription of Psalm 51 reads, to the leader, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And this Psalm stands for us, for the church, for all who follow as a paradigm on prayer when we sin. And I'm going to ask and answer this question in the next few minutes that we have together. How are we to come to God with prayers of confession? How are we to come to God with prayers of confession? The first is this. You need to approach God based on who he is. Approach God based on who he is. Verse 1, Psalm 51 says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, Blot out my rebellion. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this. The message of this psalm is that the vilest offender among God's people can appeal to God for forgiveness, for moral restoration, and for the resumption of a joyful life of fellowship and service if he comes with a broken spirit and bases his appeal on God's compassion and grace. The essential character of God is the grounding of the psalmist plea. He cries out to God, be gracious to me, have mercy on me. Now, mercy, pity, and compassion are essentially the same. In the scripture, mercy is extended to an offender as compassionate treatment of someone in distress. Mercy is forgiving the sinner and withholding the punishment that they justly deserve. Mercy means to love or to have compassion, to show kindness, and to have pity on. I like the way Millard Erickson puts it in his Christian theology. He said, God's mercy is his tender-hearted, 
loving compassion for his people. It is his tenderness of heart toward the needy. If grace contemplates humans as sinful, guilty, and condemned, mercy sees them as miserable and needy. And that's certainly what we are in our sin when we've not been forgiven of what we've done is we are miserable and needy. But what we know is that God is just and he always does what is right. He is merciful toward anyone who cries out to him for mercy. His mercy is extended at salvation, but it doesn't end at salvation. It continues in forgiveness when we sin. Think about the description of God in Exodus 34 and verse 6. The Lord, the Lord is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You remember the mercy seat in the Old Testament? God would meet with the priest on behalf of the people. And the word for mercy seat, it's usually translated as propitiation. And that mercy seat in the Old Testament and the blood that was sprinkled on it had to be repeated. And the reason it had to be repeated, it was because it was a precursor of what was to come in Christ, who would be the ultimate mercy seat. He would be the one who is our mercy seat. So our theme verse that we're thinking about for this year ahead is in part Hebrews 4 and verse 16, where the scripture says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, the reason that we can draw near, the reason that we can approach God, the reason that we can come to God is because of his love and compassion for us. And Jesus is our mercy seat. God's faithful love that is referenced here is his unfailing love for his people. And the Bible says that it endures forever. Go back sometime and read Psalm 118 and the refrain of Psalm 118 over and over and over again is that God's faithful love endures forever. It's a reminder to us of the unending love of God on behalf of his people. Matt Williams said that God's faithful love is real and true when things are good. And God is obviously being kind and his faithful love is real and true as well when things are bad, when God comes and sorts out our problems. God's faithful love is real and true when God is the one making things hard and rebuking us. And his love is real and true when things are really bad and we don't know whether it's going to end well or not. God's mercy for us and his faithful love are unchanging. They are consistent throughout. And God's abundant compassion is his mercy to help the helpless. He helps us when we sin because he compassionately cares about us. Now, think about it this way. David asked mercy from God not because he deserved it. It's an important point. Not because he deserved it, but because he needed it. And when you go to God and you've done wrong in some way, you're asking God for his mercy and you're dependent on his compassion and his love, not because you deserve it, but because you need it. And because you know God will give it to you 
and he'll help you in your need. On occasion, you'll read about a governor extending mercy to people in the legal system. Just before New Year, uh, the New Year, uh, I read a little story about Governor Cooper of North Carolina who had commuted the sentences of six people and granted pardons of forgiveness to four others. A commutation is a reduction of sentence, so it bumps the sentence down based on whatever it previously was. And then a pardon of forgiveness means that the person cannot be further punished for an offense and should not be penalized for having a record of that offense. And let me, let me tell you, let me be transparent with you. When I read that story and I saw some of the things that the people had done, you know what my first response was? Well, they didn't deserve that. Why would he do that? Well, he considered it. Hopefully he used wisdom in doing it. Hopefully there was rationale for doing it. And he extended mercy. Well, if we were to look objectively at our own sin as well as we can at other people's sin, we would see that we don't deserve God's mercy. But yet he gives it to us because of the justice that has been enacted on his son in paying the price for us. So it's not as though God has just ignored our sin. He's not turned a blind eye. No, he's dealt with it in Jesus. Isaiah 49 and verse 13 says, The Lord can comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. You look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels. He was moved with compassion. He acted on the behalf of people who were sick and suffering and in need. And God will do the same thing for you. So approach God focused on who he is, and you can come freely because of the invitation that he has extended to you in Christ. The second part of this is you have to admit your sin to God. You have to admit your sin to God. I pick it back up reading now in verse 2 of Psalm 51. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse from me, uh, me from my sin. For I'm conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Now watch verse 4. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. So we have an acknowledgement here. He says, I know... That's an intellectual understanding of the situation. He says, for I am conscious of my rebellion. He knows full well what he's done. And then there is an awareness. He said, my sin is always before me. So this word before is a reminder that it is subjectively felt when we understand the situation. And it, I believe in the months that passed between the sins and the confession... David had not escaped the sense of sin. Oh, he tried to ignore it. He tried to deny it. He tried to cover it up. But he could not escape it. And until he confessed his sin, he was miserable in his sin. Just as any child of God should be in their sin. Now this is an important point at this juncture that we need to make. When we have rebelled against God and sinned and done wrong, missed the mark of his holiness, a mark of a genuine believer, 
someone who's been regenerated and justified is the fact that their sin bothers them. If there is no conviction, there's no concern, there's not a feeling of the weight of it, that is a mark that regeneration probably has not taken place. And of course, only the Holy Spirit knows this. I'm not the Holy Spirit, but I'm speaking in terms of a general pattern. That if a person can habitually sin and it not bother them, then that would point us to the fact that they probably have not been regenerated. Another part of this is that God disciplines and chastens those that he loves. So Hebrews chapter 12 is clear about this, that God will deal with us in our sin. He will get our attention. There may be temporal consequences. There may be things that happen around us because of our foolishness and what we've done or what we've said or how we've acted or actions we've taken or whatever. And the consequences are real. Those consequences in and of themselves are mercy from God because God is drawing us to repentance. And when that chastening comes, when that heavy hand of God comes on us, more than ever, then we need to respond to God and admit the situation to him. Martin Luther said of this passage, he said, it would read as though my sin plagues me. It gives me no rest and no peace. Whether I eat or drink, sleep or wake, I am always in terror of God's wrath and judgment. When we try to keep our sin undercover and we refuse to voice it to the God who knows it all anyway, the reality is the sins of our life wreck our spiritual lives. That's what David's communicating. There's an admission here that he had offended God. He's understanding what has been violated. Notice the language. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, practically speaking, his sin in the immediate context was against uh, Uriah and Bathsheba herself. Um, of course, the, the Bible tells us that sin can be against our own body. It can be against a neighbor. It can be a number of different situations. But what this passage of Scripture is reminding us of is that whether the immediate sin is against our body or against another person or against the church as a whole, our sin is ultimately against God. That's the teaching, that we have sinned against the Lord. And when David was confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 13, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. I believe the pattern here denotes someone who has a relationship with God and then confesses their sin to God. That the eternal power of sin and death has been ultimately destroyed in the death of Christ but we still live with the effects of it and we struggle with it in this life as long as we reside in the flesh, even as we progressively grow to be more like Jesus. Confession is the deliberate decision to come before God with our sins. Now, we've all heard qualified apologies for things that people have done wrong, whether they're in the public eye or or maybe somebody even just in your family, and, 
they'll make statements like, I'm sorry that you feel that way about what I did. Okay, that's not confession. Or, um, I made a mistake. Well, it might have been a mistake, but if it was sin, it was sin. So, I made a mistake is, is not a full confession. There's all these different ways that we try to qualify it. We try to make it sound better, either because we're embarrassed or we want to minimize what we've done or we want to project it onto somebody else to put the responsibility on them. Well, they really made me do this. Well, nobody can make you do anything unless you choose to do it. And confession is a deliberate decision to come before God with your sins. And he says here to God, essentially, you are right when you pass judgment. You know what he's doing? He's confessing to God and appealing to the justice of God and his righteous character. So we've got this thread continuing here where it's not just the compassion and the faithful love of God, the mercy of God that endures forever that he's appealing to. But now he says, hey, you do right. If I confess this to you, I know that you're going to do right. And this reminds us of the fact that forgiveness comes to us by way of the cross where Jesus took our sins upon himself and to not confess with clarity is to diminish the price that was paid for us at Calvary. To not confess with clarity is to diminish the price that was paid for us at Calvary. When we try to push it to the background, blame somebody else, deny, whatever, you name it, that's not going to get us to where we need to be spiritually. So confession is not just acknowledging sin, it is also agreeing with God about your sin. And this is an important point. It says that we have been set free in Christ, but yet we acknowledge the serious nature of our behavior in this life, and we are agreeing with God for what it is. So we're not going to qualify it, minimize it, project it on somebody else, make excuses for it. We're just going to say, oh God, I own my behavior, and this is what I did. So if you're greedy, you need to tell the Lord you're greedy. If you lust, you need to tell the Lord that you lusted. If you tell a lie, you need to tell the Lord you're a liar. I mean, it needs to be just as clear to him as the action that you've taken if you expect to receive cleansing and ultimately restoration. So admit your sin to God. That's the confession aspect of this. Then the next part is ask God for forgiveness. Now begin reading again in verse 6. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me with wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Uh, Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. The sin nature is deep within us, but the work of God is also deep within us. Forgiveness in the Bible means a release. It means a dismissal of something. The forgiveness of God is the release of sinners from the just penalty of our sins and a dismissal of charges against us. And Colossians 1 and verse 14 indicates that in God's beloved Son, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. 
So his request of God in asking him forgiveness for forgiveness is specifically, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Hyssop is a type of a woody plant. It's a easiest way to think about it would be that it's a shrub, more or less. David asked God to cleanse him and to do so in connection with the atoning sacrifice of a substitute. Now, here's a connection that we don't want to miss. Hyssop was used to apply the blood of the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. A branch of hyssop was used to smear blood on the top and the sides of the door frames of the Israelites in anticipation of the coming of the angel of death on the eve of Passover. It was also used for the sprinkling of the priest purifying water in Numbers 19. In the Levitical law, the priest also uh, used hyssop to sprinkle the purifying water in uh, other circumstances in worship. Uh, And one commentator said, here the psalmist petitions the Lord to be his priest by taking the hyssop and by declaring him cleansed from all sin. Remember, we can go to the throne of grace and receive help in our time of need. Why? Because Jesus is the high priest. He's the intercessor for us. We do not need an earthly priest to bring this about because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Hebrews 9.22 says uh, that the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. You cannot cleanse yourself from your sin. You need God to cleanse you by the blood of a perfect sacrifice. The doctrine of atonement explains salvation and forgiveness for us. So let's return to it again for a moment. God imputed Christ's righteousness and he imputes Christ's righteousness to those who humbly ask for forgiveness of their sin. So this means that Jesus paid the full price for our sin and we have been forgiven at the cross for every sin we have ever committed, past, present, and future. There is a need for daily forgiveness as we confess our sins and forsake them in sanctification. But you are not on a daily basis praying for your sin so that you might be justified. The work of Jesus is sufficient, it's complete, and it is eternal. And nothing changes our position of who we are in Christ. But what it affects is it affects our fellowship with God and our relationship with him in real time. So we can think about it in the context of a marriage relationship, for example. When uh, two people, a man and a woman, are married, uh, they are in a covenant relationship of marriage. Sometimes things are not always pleasant because one or the other has done something to offend offend the other one or it's just a particularly difficult time in their lives or whatever they're going through, whatever the case might be. But if there has been an offense, to use this example and to draw the analogy further, The marriage relationship in the covenant is not broken, but the fellowship 
the relationship is hindered. This is how we would understand our relationship with God and our sin in terms of our sanctification. If we are possessing the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith, if we've been declared righteous in Jesus, then our sins, past, present, and future, have been atoned for. They're taken care of. It's not even a question. But the issue is, are we being sanctified? Are we growing in the likeness of Jesus? And is our sin hindering our fellowship in our relationship with God? The psalmist prays, David says, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. This is an analogy that's taken up again later in, in uh, the Old Testament to the sinful people in Isaiah's day um, whose hands were covered in blood. The Lord said this in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 16 and following. He said, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil, learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, uh, plead the widow's case, come and let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. Sin deeply stains us and we are like filthy garments that need to be completely washed. And we come to Psalm 51, reminded of our original source for cleansing. That God's complete forgiveness can be experienced, provided true repentance is shown. He says, let me uh, hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and it blot out my guilt. This is an interesting phrase because at times the expression in the scripture is that uh, it seemed that God had hidden his face from the people. Like if they were particularly in need and they're praying, they're crying out to God, not in a moment of rebellion, but in a moment of dependence. And it seemed like God had hidden his face from them. Well, this is a turn of words here. And David is expressing the, the desire that God, in fact, will not look upon his sin, but will rather blot it out. And we're reminded that our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103 and verse 12. That's how far he removes our sin from us. So ask God for forgiveness and repent. Turn from what you're doing. And then finally, accept restoration from God. Let's look again now at verse 10. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. God of my salvation and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. So there's some, some very key words here that he, that he draws out. Create is the word that's used in Genesis 1 for the creation of the heavens and the earth by God. So he says, create in me a clean heart. He's saying, God, you're the only one that can do it. It's the same exact wording that is used of God creating out of nothing. So he says, create in me a clean heart. He's saying, you're the only one that can do it. So I'm, I'm pleading with you. I'm accepting what you're doing on my behalf. He says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
And we all know that steadfastness is needed to keep a clean heart. And David's expressing his ongoing dependence on God and his desire to be close to God. He asked him to restore him because he wanted the joy again of his salvation. We all know the uh, heaviness and the weight of uh, having strayed from God and done things that weren't right or maybe gotten in a pattern of sin or whatever the case might be. And we feel that heaviness. We feel that distance from God. And he's asking the Lord to restore him, which means to, to renovate him or to restore him, to return him to a former condition. And he notes that God doesn't want a burnt offering. You know why God doesn't want a burnt offering? Because he wants your heart. That's why. He, he wants you. He wants your devotion. He wants your commitment. And restoration is only possible in him. And you've got to accept it. Now, I've heard people use the language from time to time. I've got to forgive myself. Well, I don't really know exactly what that means. But what you really need to do is you need to accept forgiveness from God because he's the one you ultimately sinned against. And you need to accept restoration from him rather than wallowing in self-loathing. Because if God is compassionate and merciful, if in fact his love endures forever, if in fact he is just and he does what is right, and if in fact he's the one who can create in you a clean heart and you couldn't do it on your own, then you need to accept what God has for you. And you need to rest in that. Verse 17 says, The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. You've heard that saying before. I, I, it's been said so much, I don't know who actually said it. It's attributed to a lot of different people. But it's the saying that sin will take you farther than you want to go, and it'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and it'll cost you more than you're willing to pay. I'm here to tell you it's true. It's true. Sin is a serious matter. You cannot ignore it and be healthy spiritually. But confessing your sin brings freedom. Repentance of sin is a major theme in the Bible. God already knows about our sins, but by confessing them, we're admitting to and we're acknowledging that our sin is offensive to God and that we are dependent on His Son and His Son alone to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And I love what G. Campbell Morgan said as I come toward a close about this particular psalm. He said, this great song, this psalm, pulsating with the agony of a sin-stricken soul helps us to understand the stupendous wonder of the everlasting mercy of God. There are seven psalms that are known as uh, penitential psalms. They are 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. Go and read in your devotion this week Psalm 32. Because Psalm 32 is the outcome of Psalm 51. It's the restoration of the joy. It is a forgiven man who has sinned greatly against God 
but who has stepped into that mercy and that everlasting love. And he's talking about what God has done on his behalf and the joy that he's experiencing. And these two Psalms go hand in hand, Psalm 51 and Psalm uh, 32. So I want to encourage you in this to incorporate in your prayer time a regular pattern of not only adoration, but confession. Practically speaking, there are two ways that the Holy Spirit will lead you through this. He will directly bring conviction of sin upon your life when you say and do things that are displeasing to God. You'll know it in a moment. There'll be no mystery. Now, if your heart has gotten hard and you've drifted away from the Lord and you're out there wandering in a wilderness somewhere and you're living in a desert dry time in your spiritual life, you will not be in as close of walk and in as much tune with the Lord and the Holy Spirit as you would otherwise. And it might not be as evident. But I promise you, if you're walking with the Lord daily, He will bring to mind things in an instant when you know you just said a crossword to somebody in your family that you shouldn't have. Or you had an errant thought and you pursued it and you know that it was not healthy for your soul. Any number of things. Or you're tempted to do something, you give in to it and you know that it was wrong in that moment. But I want to encourage you specifically not just to depend on the immediate moment of conviction, but to make it a regular part of your prayer time to ask God to reveal to you anything in your life that's displeasing to Him. And I promise you the Holy Spirit will do it. Guaranteed. And then as you read the Word, things are going to come up. And as part of that sanctifying process, you'll see something in the Scripture and you'll think, I could be more loving with my life. I could be more generous with my life. I could be more pure and holy with my life. And that's what sanctification is all about. We're all on a continuous process of growth toward the likeness of Jesus. And confession helps us in that as we draw closer to God and we become more like him. Let's bow our heads together as we close out our time together.